You can turn over to Matthew chapter 4 this morning. Kind of just going to look briefly at uh, Matthew 4 verses 1 to 11 and spend a little more time in it next week. Uh, As you know, we have communion a little later on, so we pray that God would be preparing your heart for our time together around God's table. But as we turn to Matthew uh, chapter 4, we finished up last week uh, chapter 3. And we saw the kind of the crowning of the King, Jesus Christ, His baptism and all that was involved in that. But today Jesus is faced, He'll be faced with uh, temptation. And uh, temptation is one of those things that affects everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how short you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter what your age. Temptation faces us all. And here we find that after Jesus was baptized, Matthew tells us that he was led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so we want to look at how Jesus faced his temptation today, just kind of in a nutshell, three brief points. And then uh, we'll show how that, uh, that can allow us to face our temptations. But let's read, you can read along with me as I read verses 1 through 11 of uh, Uh, Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, For man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Verse 8, Again the devil took him up onto an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Today we want to look at how we can face, not only how Jesus faced temptation, but how we can face temptation. We see here that Jesus clearly had power in his life over temptation. And hopefully that that example that he lays out for us here in Scripture will give us some input and some uh, advice on how best that we can face temptations in our life. And temptation is something that we all face um, at one point or another continually in our life. And it kind of, this story offers a account of Jesus' life at a point where it gives a unique view into his nature and into his character. Um, If you stop and you think about it, uh, it's one of the few stories in the Bible talk about the the life of Christ, about an event in Jesus' life where there are no eyewitnesses. It wasn't, you know, Jesus tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Film at 11. You know, it's, not, it's, not, it's not that way. There's nobody there. It was just him alone. Well, how did Matthew 
come to understand that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? Obviously, Jesus what? Told him. At some point or another, Jesus must have sat down with his disciples and said, let me tell you what happened right after my baptism, the first day of ministry, the first 40 days of ministry, what that was all about. He told them about it. At some point in the earthly time of his ministry with his disciples, he told them about the time in the desert, about battling temptation and the showdown that he had with the tempter, the devil. William Barclay, one commentator, calls this temptation story the most sacred of all stories. In it, he says, Jesus is laying bare his inmost heart and soul. Because he told his followers, if you stop and think about it, the struggles that he faced. See, life isn't always, you know, a bowl of roses. Sometimes we go through hardship. We go through trial. Sometimes we're tempted in ways we could never even dream of. And Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that, hey, you know, yeah, I'm God, but you know what? I face the same things that you face. Another interesting point about this story is that it reminds us that Jesus was truly human. In verse 2 it says, after 40 days and nights he was hungry. Okay, I haven't eaten since last night. Went to a basketball game and after the basketball game we went to Applebee's with some friends and had a... a Hunk of lettuce, I guess. I don't know what it was called. Heart of Romaine or something. I don't know what it was. I don't know if that was a good choice to eat at 10 o'clock at night or 9.30, but that's the last time I ate. Had a couple cough drops this morning, but that was about it. And I'm hungry right now, to be honest with you. I'm looking forward to whatever the ladies have prepared over there. Um, you know, But here's Jesus fasting 40 days and 40 nights, and then it says simply he was hungry. Yeah, you think? You think he was hungry? Can you imagine going 40 days and 40 nights without food? I can't. I guess some men have done it, obviously, fasting. and I mean, that's, that has a place in, in, in our lives at some point. But that's a long time to go without food. In Matthew's words here about this story, it wasn't just some legend created by the early church. This was a real event because it emphasizes the humanity of our Lord and Savior. And sometimes we forget that. We have a tendency to, as believers, to strip away his humanity and make him completely unreal. If you've ever watched a movie about Jesus, some of the older movies, you know, this scene comes up. And, you know, after these 40 days and 40 nights in the desert being tempted by the devil, you know, Jesus is sitting there. Every hair is perfectly placed. You know, there's not a, a bead of sweat on his brow. He looks like he just got out of the dressing room, for goodness sakes. And then he talks in this bold, you know, English voice. And, you know, that's crazy. That's not reality. Jesus was, was tempted in a way that, that would make a lot of us just <laughs> shudder at the thought. And we have a tendency to, to listen to songs that we sing around Christmas time the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And we think, well, yeah. But that's not true. Jesus cried. He was human. He was a baby. Jesus dirtied his diaper. Jesus did all the things that babies do. And so this image that some people have of Christ is that he's so divine that he never cried as a child. He never skinned his knee. He never, when he was working with his dad, when he was little, bent a nail over in the carpentry shop. Because he was perfect. 
Well, in his deity he was, but in his, his humanity, I mean, he was still human. Yet being fully God. You know, we think of Jesus just going through his childhood and his teenage years just kind of floating on a cloud. Six feet, six feet above the ground, nothing can touch him because he was Jesus. No, that's not true. He got down there with all the other kids and played in the dirt probably. Because he was one of us. He was fully human, yet being fully God. And I know that's hard to understand. I, I can't comprehend that. But that's what Scripture tells us. He faced temptation. And it was a struggle for him. I'm sure he had emotion during that time. It's not like the movie where he just speaks in a Shakespearean monotone voice and, oh, this was, you know, I was tempted. No, he, he went through it. And he went through it for us. So this story tells us that Jesus was human, that he was tempted, and he had power over temptation. And I don't know about you, but that gives us hope. That should give gives me hope. We, sh we should all be filled with hope because of what we see Christ going through. Because you know what? We're human. And you know what else? We're tempted. And you know what else? We can have power over temptation in our lives, just as Christ had. That's exactly what the, the book of Hebrews says over in, in chapter 4, verse 15. In chapter 4, verse 15 of Hebrews, it says, We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's not the kind of high priest we have. He writer of Hebrews says, But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet, without sin. He overcame temptation. That allows me to believe that, you know what, because I have the power of Christ living in me, I can overcome temptation with His strength, with His power. And today we're going to look at that. In dealing with temptation, there's three things I want us to look at. And this is kind of a, you know, not necessarily a verse by verse. We're going to kind of look back at this next week. But it's kind of an overview of this text. The first thing that we have to realize about temptation is we have to expect it. We should expect temptation in our life. Temptation is inevitable. Even good people are tempted. Even people who walk in the Spirit are tempted. Look at what verse 1 says in Matthew. Then Jesus was led by whom? Who led him into the wilderness to be tempted? The Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. To be tempted by the devil. Why would God do that? Why would God lead the Son of God somewhere where He's going to face struggle and hardship and be tempted, enticed to do evil? But He was doing exactly what God wanted Him to do. But He still faced temptation. See, temptation isn't one of those things that when you're living the, the perfect spiritual life, that none of us do anyway, but sometimes we think we do, that we're not tempted. Temptation is inevitable. And we have a tendency to think when we face temptation that God somehow must have abandoned us. Or there must have been something wrong with us when we're going through that temptation. Or we wouldn't be experiencing temptation in our life. And that's not true. It's just simply not true. Even good people have to experience temptation in their life. Even people who are being led by the Holy Spirit experience temptation. That's just what happens. It's part of life. 
Now, there's an important distinction to make here in this story as we read through this. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. But who did the tempting? Satan. It wasn't God. God will never tempt you to do evil. Ever. God doesn't tempt you to sin. He doesn't try to entice you with evil opportunities and call it, quote, a test. I've listened once in a while to, to people giving their testimony and they'll say, yeah, you know, I was down at the market or I was driving somewhere and boy, I saw this billboard and it was just like, wow, you know, God was testing me to see if I would dwell on this, whatever was up there, image that maybe I shouldn't have been looking at or whatever. And I knew God was, that was a test for me. Well, I don't think God does that. God doesn't place things in our path that are going to cause us to fall and do evil. In our judicial system, I remember when I was working with the DA's office, one of the things that in the court cases after court case they would do, especially drug cases, they would have to look at, well, this undercover cop, how did he actually sell these illegal drugs to this, this person? Because as an undercover cop, you can't go up to somebody and say, hey, you want to buy some drugs? Come on. Come on. It'll make you feel good. Come on. Yeah, just a little bit. Here, just try it. Come on. Just try it. You can't do that. It's called entrapment. God doesn't do that either. Temptation, though, is inevitable, but it doesn't come from God. The Bible says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, in James 1.13. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt with evil anyone, is the implied meaning of that text. See, God's purpose is not to tempt us to do evil, but God's purpose in our life is to give us power over that temptation. Now, does He just shield us from all the temptation? No. That doesn't happen. Another thing I want you to realize about temptation is that it often happens after a peak experience in our life. An experience that you just are on top of the world and you think, man, everything's going so great. And maybe you've had victory spiritually in your life at a certain point and you're just on top of the, the mountain and you're going, yeah, this is wonderful. Think about where Jesus was last week, <laughs> right before the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. Here he is, the Son of God, right before he's led into the wilderness to be tempted, he's baptized by John the Baptist. Moving scene, we looked at that last week. John declared, here is Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And after he baptized Jesus, after they had a little dialogue about that, the Spirit came in the form of a dove upon Jesus. And a voice came out of heaven saying, This is my Son whom I love and whom I am well pleased with. That's kind of the, that's a, a wonderful way to start off a ministry. I mean, can you imagine if your first sermon in, in a church a new church, and you get up there behind the pulpit, and all of a sudden, you know, you see a dove descending on somebody, and then, you know, whoa, you know, they kind of glow, and then, and then you hear a voice out of the rafters saying, you know, this is my servant whom I am well pleased, you know. That would be amazing. Right after the coronation of the king, or the crowning of the king, the inauguration of Jesus' earthly ministry, obviously it was an exciting time in his life. He was about to begin the work that all those 30 years God had been preparing him for. Preparing those around him for. 
And God even spoke audibly as to endorse His Son. And immediately after that powerful event in the ministry and life of Christ, Jesus faced the devil one-on-one. In the Old Testament, there's a story about Elijah who single-handedly faced and defeated 450 prophets of Baal. You know the story, 1 Kings. During an extended time of drought, and he challenged them to call on their gods, and he was kind of, you know, just putting God against all their false gods. And he said, hey, you know, I challenge your, your gods to bring fire upon this altar. And here are these, you know, people out there, they're praying to all their 450, uh, or, or all their gods and these 450 prophets of Baal out there. They prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and what happened? Nothing. Nothing happened. But Elijah built an altar to the living God and he called boldly upon God to consume the fire. And it says, the fire of the Lord came down from heaven and consumed the altar. Everything. Water, everything. And, it, and everyone knew, the Bible says, that Elijah's God was the Lord. And then Elijah prayed for the rains to come and God answered his prayer and it rained. And that was a high point in Elijah's life. We've all had those points spiritually. God answered... Our prayer, or maybe a loved one gets saved, we've been witnessing to and praying for for years, or, or somebody's doing medically better, and, and we're just rejoicing in the Lord. Maybe our relationship's just going so much better than what it was before, and we're just, boy, this is great. In the life of Elijah, immediately after that high point in his life, he heard Jezebel was angry with him and wanted to kill him. And what did he do? He panicked and he ran for his life. And here we find Elijah out in the desert. And he told God in First Kings 18, I can't take this anymore. Just kill me. Here's a guy who just, you know, before was on top of the world. He was courageous when he faced the 450 prophets of Baal. But he ran like a coward when he heard about threats from this, this woman Jezebel. And that's just the way it happens. Remember when Israel had been delivered from Egypt... Pharaoh came pursuing Israel with his army. Hezekiah even, when he left the, the Passover, Sennacherib came against him. All these points, even Paul, when he received the revelations, then he, all of a sudden he was assaulted with all these temptations. It doesn't make sense. But that's what happens in our life. That's just real life. That's how temptation happens. After a peak experience, we often find ourselves alone in the desert. There's a big game today. And, you know, one of the hardest things for a coach, doesn't matter whether they're the NFL or NBA or whatever, in his book, Pat Riley talks about, in his book, The, the Winner Within, NBA coach, he talks about how difficult it is for a championship team to win a second consecutive championship. Because that peak experience, you know, they won the Super Bowl or they won the championship, whatever it is, it leads to a whole new type of struggle that these players go, go through. Because it's almost like they arrived. <laughs> you know, the team that wins tomorrow or today probably won't win, may not even show up next year. That's just the way it goes. They hit their peak. And if you're not ready for success, it can be very hard to handle. 
Benjamin Franklin said this, success has ruined many a man. And that's so true. And after Jesus was declared by John the Baptist to be the Messiah, the next event in his life was a time of temptation in the, in the desert. The next event in his life wasn't the triumphal entry into Jerusalem that we all read about, where thousands gathered and shouted, Hosanna. That would seem logical, but that's not where he was. It wasn't the feeding of the 5,000. It wasn't raising Lazarus from the dead. What was the next event in Jesus' life? It was 40 days alone in the desert without food. And after that high point, he faced temptation. Peak experience in our life is always usually followed by some form of temptation. So we need to expect it. There's always a time of struggle. And when we think everything is going great, well, you better brace yourself and just say, hey, you know, I haven't arrived and, and, and you know, this isn't it. There's going to be a low time after this sometime. You can expect the time of testing to follow. Another thing, just quickly about temptation, is that it always attacks us when we're most vulnerable. Have you ever realized that? Always. I mean, here's Jesus alone in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights without food and water. And the tempter came to him and said, look at what he says in verse 3. If you are the Son of God, all these stones, you can make all these stones what? Become bread. What did he do? Satan hit Jesus right where he it knew it would hurt. He was hungry. He hit him on his humanity side and said, Man, I know your, your gut is just retching right now for food. And You know what? You're the, if you're the Son of God, you can turn these stones into bread. Why don't you do it, Jesus? Go ahead. He knew the idea of eating food was the most tempting thing in his humanity that could be put in Jesus' mind. And he wanted Jesus to abuse his own power for his own needs. And so he attacked them, where at that moment he was most vulnerable. He tried to get them to eat. Now, here's a simple fact in life. Temptation doesn't hit you when you're strong and where you're strong. It always hits you where you're weak. Your weakest link, that's where it's going to hit you. If your business is thriving but your marriage is on the rocks, guess where, the, where Satan's going to hit you? The tempter's going to come after that area. If you have a strong family life, but you're going through some struggles at work, guess where the, the tempter is going to hit you? He's going to hit you in the weakest link. He'll find wherever you're vulnerable, and he'll go after it. It's just like, you know, if, if a key player did not show up today for the Colts on their offense, you know, well, what are the Bears going to do? The Bears are going to, they're going to, they're going to know that. Hey, that, that guy's not showing up for the game. He's injured. Whatever reason, he's not going to play. We're going to hit him on that side, or we're going to hit him with passes if it's a defender. Whatever it might be. They're going to hit him where they're weakest. Same thing the enemy does. He hits us where we're most vulnerable. So does that mean you just give him the towel and say, oh, well? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means that we have to somehow rise to the occasion. We have to somehow face temptation in God's strength and not our own. Jesus was really at the part of the point of starvation almost, but he didn't give in. To experience power over temptation, the first thing you need to do is you need to learn that it's going to happen. We have to expect it. It happens to everyone. It happens to good people. And it frequently comes after a victory in your life. And it always hits you where you're weakest, not where you're strongest. Secondly, we have to understand temptation. 
What do I mean by that? Many times I think we lose the, the battle against temptation because we don't understand how the temptation works in our own lives. Temptation is something by its very nature is deceptive. It often presents itself in a twisted way, a twisted logic. And Matthew tells us how the devil took Jesus to this holy city and had him stand on the highest point in the temple. And look at what he says in verse 6. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And then look at what Satan does next. He quotes Scripture at Jesus. He said, For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and He will lift up you up into their hands that you don't strike your foot against the stone. What's Satan doing here? He quoted Scripture knowing that Jesus knew it was absolutely true, but he was trying to get him to apply it in a twisted, self-serving way. He was saying, come on, Jesus, God will take care of you. Jump. And there's kind of an unspoken implication here. Almost, do you really believe God will take care of you? Maybe He won't. Maybe that's why you're not jumping, Jesus. Because maybe you're really not the Messiah. I was reading a book one time and they were talking about marketing and sales things and all this stuff. And the one thing that the, the, the salesman said, selling insurance, said the thing you do if they're not biting, if they don't want to buy the insurance... You want to make sure that not only the husband is there, but the wife is there and usually the children. And if they're not willing to you know, sign on the line for this insurance, the last thing that you pull out of your little bag of tricks is you look at the kids and you look at the wife and you're saying, you mean they're not worth 50 cents a day? He goes, inevitably it works every time. They sign. They sign. They sign. You really don't care about your family, do you? Or you buy this insurance. Now, that's not to put down salesmen. But you know what? Satan knows what buttons to push. And he'll use whatever twisted logic he can. He'll say things like, you know that God wants you to be happy, right? You know that you're... You'll never really be happy as long as you're married to this person or you're married to that person. So God must want you to, to go ahead and get that divorce and find somebody you'd be happy with. Unless, of course, you believe that God just wants you to be miserable the rest of your life. Or He'll say, God doesn't want your family to, to do without the necessities of life. And you need your money more than the government needs it. So you know what? It's okay to cut those corners on your income taxes. Nobody's looking. Nobody ever find out. Spend that money on your kids. Rationalize it. Or in business, maybe, you know, hey, the customer never find this out. Who cares? They don't know what anything about this. And we'll just say we do this and we won't have to do it and we'll still bill for it. See, very few people can be tempted to do something just boldly bad. But we can somehow be tempted with the idea of doing something bad in order to get something good. <laughs> then it doesn't look so bad. But probably not many of you would, would be tempted just to do something bad just for the sake of doing something bad. That doesn't work. And Satan knows that. 
So usually here he tempted Jesus to jump off the temple in order to prove that he was God's Messiah. He tried to get him to do something wrong in order to accomplish something good. That's the twisted logic I'm talking about. But Jesus understood the temptation well enough to see through his twisted logic. Another thing I want you to notice about temptation is it often promises what often promises what God has already provided. Matthew tells us that Satan took Jesus to a very high mountain in verse 9, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and he says this, All this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. Now there's something ridiculous about the words here that, that Satan chooses to use, because he's offering something to give to Jesus that God has already given him. God had already declared Jesus to be the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He had declared that all creation would worship Him. It even, the Word even declares that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. That's already been God's promise to Jesus throughout eternity. This is His world. In fact, even in the book of Colossians, remember when we went through there, it says that Jesus is the one who created the world. And yet... Here in Satan's world, he thinks that he's going to offer it back to him. But that's the way temptation works. It offers you something that it can't really give. Something that only God can give. Temptation will say to you, hey, you know what? Do this and you're just going to be happy. It's going to be floating up before you'll just be happy. Everything will be right. Do this and you'll have peace of mind. Do that and you'll feel good about yourself. But you know what? Beloved, the devil can't give you happiness. Because it isn't the devil's to give. He can promise you the world, but he can't give you the world. Because it really isn't his to give. Only God can give true happiness. Only God can give you the peace of mind. Only God can give you a sense of well-being in your soul. So understand this about temptation. It promises more than it can deliver. And it doesn't last forever. Do you realize that temptation doesn't last forever? When Jesus, it says, resisted the tempter, what happened? The, the tempter finally went away. That's good news. See, too often we give in to temptation because we think, I can't fight this thing forever. Guess what? You don't have to. <laughs> temptation doesn't last forever. James says this in verse four, or chapter 4, verse 7, Resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. Resisting temptation doesn't make you weaker, it makes you stronger. And temptation doesn't last forever, but it also it doesn't leave forever either. It's not like you're tempted once in your Christian walk and that's it's over. In Luke's account of the temptation story, after Jesus resists Satan's temptation in Luke 4.12, Luke says this, When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Has the implication that, hey, I'll be back. And that's the way temptation is. You never totally beat it. When Jesus overcame temptation, he didn't mean that he was through with temptation for the rest of his life. He had to deal with temptation over and over throughout his ministry. Because he, he was tempted in all ways as we were tempted, yet without sin. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember when he was tempted not to go through with his sacrificial death. He was struggling. There was a temptation there. Hey, take the easy way out. 
The temptation doesn't last forever, nor does it leave forever. You're never going to get to the point in your Christian life where you don't have to deal with temptation anymore. This won't happen. In dealing with temptation, we need to expect it. We need to understand it. And thirdly, we need to attack it. We need to attack it. How did Jesus respond to temptation? He responded with what? He responded with the Word of God. Every time the devil tempted Jesus, he responded by saying what? It is written. Every time. There's something about the words of Scripture that give us strength in overcoming temptation. And there's various ways that you can apply that to your life. If you struggle in your thought life, you know, there's, there's verses that you can pull out of Scripture and memorize and say, boy, you know what, I'm struggling with that. Maybe if you struggle with dishonesty, you know, uh, Proverbs, re memorize some Proverbs and put those in your head. Psalm 119.11 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I want, that I might not sin against you. David understood that principle. Taking God's word and applying it and, and, and putting it inside our mind and our heart. So that we can attack temptation when it comes. You know, there's, there's something about when you're in a battle and you run out of ammo. You know, you ever played paintball or any of those things, you know. I mean, there's something about, you know, you got your enemy right where you want him and you're just hammering him. And then all of a sudden the little thing, you know, runs dry and there's no more ammo. You, know, you don't want to be in that situation. That's, that's a very precarious situation to be in. Well, think of Scripture as our ammo. We want to keep our, our ammunition lockers full with God's Word because we know the attack's coming. We know it. Temptation is inevitable. And when that temptation comes, we want to be able to say, hey, it is written. God's Word says this. I don't have to get into that. Whatever it might be. The Word of God is your first defense. The more... You know Scripture and use it, the more power you'll experience over temptation. And remind yourself that, you know what, when you resist that temptation, when we, you resist the devil, the Bible says clearly that he will flee from you. When you're tempted to lie, remind yourself that the accurate waits delight the Lord. Proverbs 11.1 1. When you're tempted to take a verbal shot at one of your kids, remind yourself, Paul says, fathers, don't provoke your children. See, the words of Scripture give us ammunition against these temptations that we all face. I mean, it would be wonderful if we could memorize the whole Bible, but I don't think many people have. I'm sure somebody has. But, but we can memorize verses that apply to our need at that time. You attack temptation by speaking the Word of God. And you attack temptation by confronting it. Matthew tells us that when Satan tempted Jesus to bow down and worship him, what did Jesus say? Okay. Oh, I don't think that would be a good idea. I don't think I should do that. No, he said, away from me, Satan, in verse 10. He didn't run from the tempter. He confronted him. He told him basically, you know what? You get lost. <laughs> Just get lost. Let me ask you a question this morning. How do you speak to the tempter? Can you hear yourself? At that time, you're being tempted. Oh no, this temptation is so strong. 
And I'm so weak. I'll never win this battle. Lord, I just keep on falling into the same sin over and over. Just can't get over it. Or do you stand strongly and say, hey, you know what? I don't have to put up with this. Get lost. By the authority of Christ and His Word, I don't need to deal with this. There's no way I'm going to commit that sin. No way. That's the kind of attitude we have to have when it comes, when temptations come, because they are going to come. You don't have to cower in the face of temptation. You have to confront it boldly. You have to go on the attack. Because you're not confronting it in your own strength. See, that's the key. But you're confronting it in the strength of God. And another way to kind of confront temptation, attack temptation, verse 10, is to really reaffirm your commitment to God. Because Jesus does just that. He says, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, what? Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Jesus was saying, You know what? Leave me alone because I belong to God. See, I, I really believe that part of the problem that so many Christians are struggling in their Christian walk today is they don't understand their position in Christ. They don't understand who they are in Christ. They think that all, you know, it's just a bunch of do's and don'ts and, you know, and boy, I just have to go to church and do all this. And, and they think that somehow that's what Christianity is all about. That's not what Christianity is all about. Christianity is, is understanding who you are in Christ. That you're one of God's chosen children. That He selected you, the Bible says, before the foundation of the world. That He set His love on you. That His Son died for you. And that He caused you to believe in Him. And there's not anything that can happen in your life without God saying, okay, I'll let that happen. Not one thing. It could be the most horrendous. You could go down driving down 680 and get in a horrendous accident and be paralyzed the rest of your life. Are you telling me, Steve, that God allowed that to happen? Yes. <laughs> because God could have very well prevented it if He didn't want it to happen. For some reason, that's His plan for your life. And we have to get over the idea of feeling sorry for ourselves all the time. Whoa, woe is me, woe is me. It's not one thing that happens in our life that's not overshadowed by the sovereignty of God. And we need to remember that. That we're, we're His children. We're in the palm of His hand. We belong to the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And when Satan comes dancing around our territory, we need to tell him to get lost. And I don't mean that in a, you know, I mean, we need to have a respect for the enemy. Don't get me wrong. Because there is a real enemy. There is a real devil. And he does have demons. And they're hard at work to cause you to, to fall short of God's glory in every way possible. But you know what? Once you understand your position in Christ and you understand that you have victory over sin, for the first time in your life in Christ, you can have victory over sin. You don't have to just go along with the crowd and sin. For the first time, the power of the Holy Spirit is within you saying, do the right thing. I'll help you do the right thing. I've never dealt with little kids at all. Once in a while, you'll hear them say to each other, you know, when they're playing. And one will be telling the other one, you know, do this, do that, you know, kind of boss them around. How many of you ever heard this? When a little child turns to, to one of his friends, You're not the boss of me! You ever hear that? You're not the boss of me! You hear that a lot. 
They know what that means. And usually they'll say, you know, my dad's the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. My dad's the boss of me, but not you. See, that's how we need to respond to temptation. You know what? You're not the boss of me. Who do you think you are coming around here trying to make me do these things? That's not right. I'm not going to do that. Jesus is my boss. I want to do what he does. I want to serve him. I don't want to serve you. I mean, your, your promises are empty. You're laying all this stuff out there. Oh, I'll be happy doing this or whatever. Hey, you know what? I'm not saying sin doesn't have its pleasures, but they're fleeting, beloved. And, and, and you know, it, it's, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. When we face temptation, we need to reaffirm our commitment to God. We, we need to remind ourselves that we belong to Him. That it's Him we serve. And what a wonderful way to set up for our communion time this morning to realize that Christ had paid the price for all of us on the cross of Calvary. See, Christianity isn't one of those religions where they kind of get you in the door and then, okay, now you've got to do all this stuff to, 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 you know, to, to maintain it. Obviously, you want to serve Him out of obedience and you, you maybe get involved in ministry, whatever it is, but it's always, it's not a have to. If it's a have to, don't do it. It should be. You know what? Why wouldn't I want to do it? Why wouldn't I want to serve the Lord that gave His life for me? In whatever way possible. How could I not do it? See, the problem is today is a lot of people come to Christ and they come to Christ for these different motives and you know they just want to be happy and they think that somehow Jesus is going to make them happy and take away all their problems. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. That's not what Christianity is about. Jesus promised just the opposite. He said, hey, you think they persecuted me. You know, you want to follow me? They're going to persecute you more. You think I have problems? Man, you know, you're going to have more problems. He promises you trials. He promises you those struggles in your life. It's not a bowl of roses. Bowl of cherries. I don't know where I got bowl of roses. Who ever heard of a bowl of roses, you know? Bowl of cherries, I guess is the phrase. But temptation, beloved, is a fact of life. And I just want to share with you this morning that, you know what, in Christ, we have power to overcome that temptation. Not in your own strength, but in the strength that God provides. And we just want to take a, a few moments and, and uh, prepare our hearts for our communion time this morning. I want to ask, just if you bow in a word of prayer uh, this morning and, and uh, the worship team would come. I'm going to sing a couple songs. but Father, we thank You for this morning. And, and Lord, we, we pray that our hearts would not give in to the tempter when he comes around. Lord, that we would know what it means to overcome temptation as Christ did. And Father, we pray that You would continue to just touch each heart that's here this morning. Lord, you know where the hearts are. We, we, we don't have any way of looking at somebody and saying, oh, their heart's in the right place or it's not. God, only you know those, those things. And Father, I pray this morning that there's anyone here who has yet to put their faith or trust in the living God, in Christ, who has yet to just acknowledge their own sinfulness before a holy God. Lord, we all sin in a myriad of ways. There's not one person in this room that has never sinned. Lord, we're all guilty before You. Somehow, that guilt has to be dealt with. There, there needs to be a payment for sin. Lord, we thank You that Your Son, Jesus Christ, already paid the price 
And we just kind of need to bring the coupon in and exchange it. Uh, Lord, we, we need to give our life for His. We need to come to the foot of the cross acknowledging our sinfulness and thank You for Your grace in washing away our sin. And Father, we just uh, pray this morning, if there's anybody here who has yet to put their faith or trust in You, I pray that they cry out to You even now in the quietness of this moment. Lord, be merciful to me a sinner. Lord, show me the right path to walk on. I'm tired of carrying around this guilt and this sin. I want to I give it to you. That's a prayer he'll, he'll hear this morning. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.